It is good being back with you all today. I uh, had a wonderful trip over to Israel uh, the last couple weeks and enjoyed uh, just traveling around the Holy Lands, being able to see the sights that you read about in the Bible and, and to watch people's lives get changed and what a difference it makes when you can stand someplace like Mount Carmel and then read the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the battle that took place between God and their God and how he sent fire from heaven and just destroyed you know, the altar that was set up there. Maybe to travel down to the Jordan River and to know that it was here that John was baptizing people and people's lives were being turned over to to repentance of their sins and looking forward to the Messiah who was coming and then he did come himself and walk and was there and just just to walk the streets of Jerusalem and to see the places that we read about in the Bible it's it's amazing and it makes it comes to living color before your very eyes and so I had a wonderful trip I barely got out of Israel by the skin of my teeth um, but we made it they shut down the country after I was there and uh, but God has been so good with us we're just happy to be back and uh, I'm looking forward to moving forward here as we prepare for Easter and coming up upon that. We are doing this series about faces about the cross. There are so many people that the Bible speaks brilliantly about, and we know their names, and we can almost describe what they look like because we've read about them so much. But there are some people in the story that interact with Jesus that we really know not much about at all. And such is one, this nameless hero that we're going to encounter this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 27. And we're going to begin at about verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the lands until the ninth hour. I will stop a second. The sixth hour. Now, when we're talking about the sixth hour of the day, but their day began at 6 a.m. rather than midnight. Even though we've always had that internal clock of 12 o'clock to 24-hour day. But they started their work, and they called it the first hour was 6 a.m., and the third hour was 9. The sixth hour was noon, and the the ninth hour would have been 3. So we're kind of looking at our time clock a little bit different. And about noon, all of a sudden, as Jesus is on the cross, it gets dark. It's not a scheduled solar eclipse. There's nothing like that all of a sudden. But the world gets dark, and for three hours, it is nighttime. Verse 46 says, And about the ninth hour in this darkness, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now let me set the stage for you this morning. If you could just kind of close your eyes and begin to imagine, if you will just think about an ancient city with dirt roads, buildings made out of stone block, and and, and stacked one upon the other, and, 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 and tightly squeezed behind this massive wall. 
And, and, and in this land, it's, it's just a, an interesting place. It's a rugged terrain, very mountainous and rocky and hilly, and, and uh, it's arid, and it's a land that uh, is a little bit different than where we are today. And then you've got the hustle and bustle of people going in and out through the markets of the streets and, and down through the, the corridors, and, and people are everywhere, and you hear the sounds of laughter and, and people yelling and those unintelligible words, you just don't know what's being said, but yet there's this presence of a crowd, and all of a sudden you notice that they're gathering along just outside the city, along this hillside, there's this mob of people that are over there making a lot of noise. And there you'll see a Roman legion is present. And they've been all around the city, and they're making their presence very known, and they're dressed for business. Matter of fact, they're having a little bit of trouble keeping this crowd of people away from these crosses, these crucifixion scenes there at the, the hillside there. And they're trying to get people to step back, but yet people are still moving forward and just making all kinds of noise. And there are these prisoners who are hanging on these trees. It's their final punishment for the crimes that they have committed. It's their death sentence. Crucifixion. You know, crucifixion isn't something that just happens in immediacy. It, it takes a while. Sometimes it's days on end that these people will hang there until finally they just, in their weakness, they suffocate to death. Soldiers were hoping that their day was just about over, and, and they had finished their real work of nailing these prisoners to their crosses, and, and now they have to only wait and, and, and for these doomed men to eventually just die. And so they kind of just loll about, waiting, their blood-speckled garments, trying to pass the time away in these tedious hours that go by, and you would think they'd be bored just watching and waiting. Death by crucifixion. Four of these soldiers probably were trying to amuse themselves, and they, they were playing a game there that they had dug out in the dirt and the ground, and it's a game called the King's Game, and, and they're gambling with this, and hopefully one person will be able to win the garments of these fellows that are on the cross. And there's one garment in particular that they really are wanting to get because it's a seamless garment that's from that guy that's on the middle cross. And so they're, they're gambling to their best because they'd like to really take that home and, and it could be something good. With all that being done, however, there's nothing more for them to do but wait. Just wait. And while they're waiting, they're startled by this wild cry that comes from that middleman on the cross. And he lifts up his voice and, and, and he shouts out, Eli, Eli. And at the deepest point of his journey to fulfill his purpose in this world, Jesus is there upon the cross and he is crying out to God with these words. But there's something unique about these words because if you were a Jewish individual, you would know what these words are. These words come from Psalm 22, verse 1. It begins the recitation of the rest of this psalm. I think it's an important psalm for you. If you could mark in your Bible, just, just take a note and say, Psalm 22. In, in this evening, I want you just to, to think about the cross of Christ as we're nearing our time of Easter. 
and read Psalm 22 tonight. Maybe it could be the, the last thing you read before you go to bed. But this is really what Jesus was trying to convey to the people, and they misunderstood him. It's not an exclamation really of despair, but it's the words of someone suffering, even though they are innocent. And they're still trusting in God for their protection and for their salvation, that he is going to do something about it. These soldiers are all about their cross, and, and they're all alike in this. I mean, they all heard him cry out in his anguish and pain. And, and they, they heard that, and they're all alike in that they didn't fully understand what was being said because he wasn't speaking in their language of Greek or of Latin, but he was using that Hebrew a group of people's words and language, so it's a foreign tongue to them. They just know that it seems like everybody's saying he's calling Elijah. Hoping that maybe this man would come and save him. They all realize that really it's a pathetic cry of anguish with hands reaching out in the darkness and the gloom and the doom of death that is inevitable. But I think that's where their likeness ends. While they all heard the words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, their partial understanding of it was different. They didn't make the same response. They all had a different response to it. This tragic cry divided them into two distinct groups. There, there are those who just sat back and they waited. Let's see what happens next. And then there was this other that he is compelled to do something different. And so he runs. You see, when we realize that there is in this scene that which is altogether unique in and of itself, even though it was such a very common occurrence in the lives of the Romans. We're dealing here with some historical facts about crucifixion and about death and about punishment. But in this story, it's a story of an event that took place on a certain date, on a certain hill, with a certain individual that changes the course of history. And this cry of Jesus my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry that has never been uttered with such intensity until that very moment. But yet it is still a cry that is uttered even today in the lives of so many people. And we're wondering why God has forsaken us and why he has left us and why he isn't interceding on our behalf to, to step in and change things. But there's a difference with this. It is unique in this scene, but yet it's also eternal and unshakable. So this morning I want us to kind of, I want us to hear that cry of anguish and pain. And I want us to recognize that the cry reached so many different ears, and yet I, we need to fully understand the cry is one that changes lives forevermore. So let's listen to the cry of anguish. It's a cry that's been heard throughout all history. On every continent, in every nation, in every tribe, in every group of people, even in every household. It's a bitter cry of pain, a cry of anguish on the part of, of Jesus really is as old as humanity is. And yet it's as new as the tragedy of the day that we have today. Humanity is constantly being nailed to some kind of cross. We really are. 
We're, we're in such agony and pain, but it's because it's the result of sin. It's the result of our sin, and sometimes it's the result of somebody else's sin upon us. But it is true to every generation and every culture and in every people group and race of man, there has always been a cry of anguish and pain. I mean, you look where you will in any age, and you'll see a pathetic hand stretching out to somebody, to anybody, to step in and to help them, pleading for someone to just lift them up out of their pits of despair and redeem them. And if you were to listen in on any day of human history, you will hear this cry that comes with peculiar intensity even into our day today. It's always presence. It has sobbed its way through the centuries, and some may suggest that the cries are even more intensified in our day and in our generation. People are hurting. People are needing someone to save him. It's a cry that has been uttered from every man's lips, and of course, some people hear it, with more sensitive ears than others, and some are more deeply stirred by it when they hear that cry. But if we were to try to close our ears to it, we would find that we cannot do it. It doesn't matter if we shove our hands above our ears, we begin mumbling noises, and we try to block out the sign. It's still going to pierce through because we can't ignore this cry that is being uttered in all races of men. And again and again, it breaks by our complacency and our, and our love for, of ease and indifference And it is going to disturb us. And when we are disturbed, we make our varied responses just as these soldiers did that day. We hear the cry, and whether we want to or not, it's not an option. It's there. The only thing that is optional is what we do about it when we hear it. I think there are two distinct factors in this scene that stand. There is this cry of anguish, need, that is being spoken but then there is also those who are compelled to hear that cry and to respond this cry the second thing is it reaches several ears there were so many people gathered around that hillside that day that jesus was being crucified they all heard it they all were watching it wasn't as if they were ignoring him they were there to make sure that he was going to die that's what they had been screaming for and some of these soldiers, they're sitting there waiting and they're listening and say, wait a second, wait a second, let's see what's going to happen. I mean, how harmless it sounds just to say, wait and let us see. Just don't do anything, just let's see what happens. They didn't rebuke Jesus for crying out. They, they, didn't, they didn't add to his anguish by attacking him again and again. They, they didn't even say, never under any circumstances are we going to help him. They just simply said, we're not going to do anything right now. Wait. Listen, they answered in those familiar words of Matthew 27, verse 49. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And of course, they could have given some reason for their conduct. Even like you and I do so many times, when somebody around us cries out for help, we've always got excuses, don't we? Why we can't. But what if we were to ask these soldiers that were there that day, What if we were to ask them, why did you respond or not respond? I'm sure their answers would be very simple. One might say, I didn't do anything in the first place because my name's not Elijah. It's really none of my business. 
You know, so I'm not going to step in and do something because really Elijah's the one he's wanting to talk to. So he's not calling my name. If he'd have called my name, maybe I would have done it. But it's really none of my business at all. But there, that response is really altogether wrong when you know it. When we come face to face with something that needs to be done in which we have the ability and the capability of doing something about it, that call then really comes to us. It's just as genuine a call as if God had written our names in letters of fire across the sky. Anytime we hear somebody crying out in anguish and pain, He wants us to respond. Yet we go from generation to generation making the same lame excuse. They didn't ask me. It's none of my business. Maybe another one might have said, I saw the need, and I confess it, but it, really, it, was, it wasn't any of my business. And I saw that, that maybe your house was on fire and the child was in there, but really, I'm not a fireman. I, I don't know how to do those kinds of things, so I've got to wait, and I'll stand back and allow whatever happens, happens until somebody else can come in. You know? Or, or I, knew, I knew that there was an accident, but you know, I, I'm not an ambulance driver. I can't take care of those. I'm not a medic. I'm not a doctor. I don't know what to do. You know, I, I, I'm not there. I understand that when I passed the highway, the bridge was out, and I could have warned you about it, but I, I don't work for MoDOT, and I'm not a police officer, so why would you even pay attention to me? Other times we, we look at people and we say, as they cry out for hunger, well, I'm not a food pantry. I, I've got just enough to care for my own. Other people cry out for the bread of life. And we say, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a minister. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I rarely even go to church myself. In my Bible, I don't really, I know enough why I'm even saved. I, but I, I, I can't save anybody else. Let's take them to somebody else. And we all cry out about these things. And when you see the need that you can help in any fashion, it doesn't matter what it is, when you see the need, God is then and there calling your name. Maybe another response might be that they say, but I have another reason for not helping. I heard the cry and I knew the need was desperate, but I had enough confidence that somebody else was going to step up and do it. And so if I wait long enough, someone else will take care of it. And so I'll fiddle around and, and, and just kind of lull away the hours in hopes that somebody else will step up and do it. And I just can't bring myself to the conviction that, that nobody else will do anything about it. Surely somebody will. So I waited and hoped that Elijah or someone else will come and save him. You know, it's the same thing for us today. We say, I know there's a need for a teacher in a Sunday school class. But maybe somebody else will do it. I, I, I know that there's that need to give, but, but I've already given enough, haven't I? I can't, I can't give any more than what I've got. And, and there's those bills that have to be paid, but I thought if I fumble around my pockets long enough, somebody else might pay the bill. After all, you know, why should I have to take care of that? You see, I never ask how much I can do, but only with how little can I get by. Doesn't that describe our world today? There's the third reason that this soldier might have given. I think it's one that's more compelling, I think, than any of the others. It simply says, my hands are tied. 
I can't do this. I can't go against Rome. I've got to be obedient to it. I wanted to help, but the situation was beyond my control, and, and, and it seemed utterly hopeless anyway. I mean, there was no little that I could do to help this man because he is literally dying. He is bleeding to death, and I can't stop the blood enough, and he's, he's suffocating. As a matter of fact, Rome put him on there, and he has done something terrible that he deserves to at least be there, so it's beyond my ability to do this. And by this time, the agonies of the cross have really taken their toll on him, and even if I were to get him to down, he still is going to die so what good could i have done could i have stole him away and and restored him to health could i have given him to his friends what what's an answer to that i can't therefore because i could not do everything to help him i'll do nothing and really that's where we are i think as a people in the same dismal consideration is especially prevalent today. I mean, it threatens to just kind of lay its paralyzing hands on all of us. We have to look out for ourselves, don't we? That's amazing. You can't even buy toilet paper. What is toilet paper going to do to help us from a virus? Other than making the lives of other people miserable. But we're thinking about ourselves only and what we can do for me and not what I can do for you. And after all, you're not asking me, are you, to share? You're not asking me to help, are you? See, here we're met for worship this morning, and we realize that for 20 centuries, 20 centuries, Christian preaching and teaching has taken place, and far more people in this world are still going to hell Over half of this world, a majority of this world, have not put their faith in Jesus Christ and they are lost. But surely somebody else will answer their call. And if I wait long enough, maybe I won't have to. So you try to undertake this massive task and, and help those around us with such tremendous need seems almost as futile as trying to still a hurricane with one fan blowing in the other direction. It'll be no good. But there was that one soldier. We're assuming he was a soldier. And, and he was a little bit more helpful and hope as well as we begin reading that that the thing while others were saying wait while others were trying to put out the fire of his enthusiasm he ran immediately he ran and he got a sponge and he dipped it in his sour wine he put it on a reed stick and he held it up for jesus to drink what little good that that could be and yet he did that While he may not have known what this dying man was actually asking for, he did know that one of the tortures of crucifixion was this burning thirst that such bloodletting would create. Therefore, he shared with Jesus the little bit he had in these final moments. For whatever reason, Elijah wasn't coming. But this man, this soldier of the cross, he responded in a way that was not customary. He interacted with the crucified criminal with compassion. 
in the midst of everybody else telling him, stop, don't just wait, 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 hang on, don't give him that, just let's see if Elijah comes. He was willing to go against his own authority and those around him, and he stepped up to do what little he could, knowing that it's not going to save him. He's not going to restore him back to health. He's not going to help him stay alive. There's nothing he's going to do to even take him off the cross, but what he's going to do is he's going to interact with Jesus for one brief moment and show him compassion. And when we hear this, we cannot help but take a second look at this man. I, mean, I think he seems well worth looking at and trying to discover and getting to know him. I have a feeling that he belongs among those nameless heroes of the ages. There was something that needed to be done, and without waiting to see what others would do, he took it upon himself, and he went and he acted. He's among this select company of humanity to perform deeds that nobody else has even the right to ask him to do, and yet he does it. And in this situation, like this, when we get under our burdens voluntarily for love's sake, that we come to live in the spirit of the cross, but when this soldier set out to help, was he not aware of the impossibility of what was being asked? I mean, did he expect to follow through and take Jesus down from the cross and restore him to death? No. But he refused to allow that fact that he could not do everything for him to prevent him from doing anything. And therefore, though he did not save Jesus from the cross, he rendered to him the best service that he could himself, even though his job was to see to it that the man dies humanity surely this man is infinitely worth knowing the close of the first world war the uh, the allies they found among all the dead men and women that they did not even know their names maybe their bodies were so brutally torn apart or their their identification was ripped from them and what do we do with these people who we don't even know who they are and so we began to figure out that we're going to establish in all of the allied nations they set up this memorial to the unknown soldiers to pay them honor and our hero right here in this story A monument of that kind ought to be set up simply for him as well. He belongs to be immortalized among this company who were so busy doing the deeds that they did not have time to even autograph their names or to let us know who they are. And while many have not even know his name, we have this deed that is all really that really matters for us. Psalm 23, we all know it. We have recited it. We have read it over and over again. And some have suggested that it might have been David who wrote it. But it really doesn't matter who wrote it. All that really matters for us is that we have that song. All that really matters is that we know His name, but that we understand the deed that was done to our Lord and Savior in His moment of agony and anguish. And for centuries, nobody knew about even the source of the Nile River, but that river gave Egypt life and fertility, then just as it does today. We don't know to know where it comes from as long as we know what it does. 
And how much of the best work is done by men and women who simply finish the task without taking time to leave a note as to who they are. Common as the wayside grasses, ordinary as the soil, by the score he daily passes going to and from his toil. Stranger he to wealth or fame, he is only, what's his name? Not for him the glittering glory, not for him the place is high. Week by week the same old story, try and fail and fail and try. All his days seem dull and tame. Poor old plotting, what's his name? Though to someone else their guerdon, though but few his worth may know, on his shoulders rests the burden of our progress, one so slow. Red the road by which we came with the blood of what's his name. You see, there is also this cry that changes lives. It's a cry that you've heard, and it's a cry that has actually made you do something about it. But this cry, this, this cry that cried out on that cross that day, what was the outcome of the differing responses that were made by the men that were there that day? I mean, what's the outcome for us today, even as we hear? It, it makes no difference. It makes a difference in how we respond when we hear. It makes an immeasurable difference. Not only for the time, but sometimes for eternity, what we do. Look first at those who said, wait and let us see what they missed. They missed the privilege of helping Jesus. They might have been of service to Him in His hour of need. But while they did nothing, Jesus died. I mean, something like that is always taking place when we refuse to help. People die. In Luke, the 16th chapter, Jesus tells a story about a, a very rich man. And he was, he was clothed in fine linen and purple, and, and every day he had a banquet feast. And as Jesus tells the story, this man isn't really aggressively cruel or anything like that. Matter of fact, on the contrary, he was kind to some point because it tells us that there was this ragged beggar that he let stay at his gate, a doorway to his house. And matter of fact, he would even take the food from his tables, the scraps that were left over, and give the crumbs to the man. While he may not have known really who that man was, he never really fully met this beggar. Consequently, giving only the crumbs of life, eventually that beggar dies. You know, all die when we neglect them or feed them only crumbs. It doesn't matter whether it's an institution or whether it's a cause or individual itself. But when we only give them the little bits, they can't sustain life. But they're not the only ones who die. The rich man dies also. Crumbs have a way of killing those that give as well as those who receive. And so these soldiers, who by refusing to do anything to give, they refused also to live. But you say that the record does not tell us about all these soldiers. It, it, it doesn't need to tell us about them. We know from the scriptures and from experience in life that, that, that he who seeks to save his own life is going to lose it. But the one who is willing to give his life away actually saves it 
And without a doubt, but certainly even in the here and now, that is still true. You see, whenever we find men and women whose one purpose in life is to look out for themselves, we find sad, disillusioned souls who are not really living at all. And so it causes us to begin to hoard things, even when the world has a need. This coronavirus, it may be deadly. It may be just another virus, just like anything else. But what is it causing us to do? It's causing us not to think about our fellow man, not to seek and to serve, but it's causing us to hoard and to push away, to think about self. Selfishness in America is at an all-time high, I believe. But this unknown soldier, this nameless hero, what about him? Having shared his bit of wine with Jesus, I am confident that he came at once to feel the thrill of really living, to do something to benefit someone else in the midst of his dying. And I'm confident that, that, that when he himself died and he stood before this man on the cross who is now judge of all mankind, I wonder what their conversation was. I think that conversation will be different than any conversation you and I will have with him. To know that at his final moments, that somebody saw him and did something about it, not even really knowing him. I would love to hear that conversation. This is a man that I think when I get to heaven, I want to meet who is willing to go against the flow of things, against all those people around him who are screaming out to crucify, and all those people who are saying, wait, and in mockery, crying that maybe Elijah will save him if he can't save himself. Wouldn't you just love to hear the conversation that Jesus has with him because he doesn't speak to him on the cross. He cries out one more time, and he dies. He gives up his spirit. There's a plaque that has impressed upon it these letters boldly. 57 rules for making a success. It reads as follows. First, deliver the goods. Second, it doesn't matter about the other 56. I mean, there you have it. That's, that's all of it in a nutshell right there. It is, it's in this world that that's all they're looking for is just deliver the goods. It doesn't matter about anything else. We judge by results, don't we? Effort, dreams, longings, those things don't count. Hopes, desires. But what counts is delivering the goods. And when God judges, it's not about the goods. It's not about what is in our hands as well as what is in our hearts. For instance, it's easy to guess what the big dream of King David was. This mighty warrior, this, this, this man who was a valiant soldier, a general that was able to defeat all the armies he went against. He was a, a statesman, a great king whose kingdom expanded and God blessed him. He was a marvelous poet in the things that he wrote and the songs that we remember today. But yet at his death, it wasn't about those things that he wanted to be remembered. What he wanted to be remembered for was that he had built a temple to worship and honor the God that had saved them. But in his despair, he didn't get to do that. 
From his perspective, he probably saw himself as a failure because the one thing he wanted to do was to demonstrate to the world that he honored God, and, and that wasn't happening. God said, no, you're not going to do it. Your son Solomon will. But listen to these words. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 18, it says, But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. It's not about building the temple. It's not about doing something great and marvelous. It's about what is in our heart that we are surrendering ourselves to our honor and our worship of our God and leading other people to do the same thing. See, we rejoice that God judges us by what is in our hearts rather than what we have done. But what is the test of what we have in our hearts? There's just one real test. It's what we do with what we actually have in our hands. Jesus was once so thrilled about this one woman's gift that he has made her immortal in history. We don't even know her name. All we know is that she was some poor widowed woman who did not have much in life. But as she goes into the temple to offer up her gifts before God, she takes with her two little coins. We call them the widow's mite. They weren't even worth a penny. And yet in those simple things, she doesn't brag about the billions of dollars that she donated. She can't say what wonderful gifts and things that she has created and made and manifested for God. It's just this simple little gifts, something that really is seemingly nothing. And Jesus says, she is the greatest. And we still talk about her today in the simple thing. What little she had, she gave. And that's all God is asking of us. It's what little that you have that you can do to make a change in this world. We still deal with these fractions of a penny. You may not even realize it today, but it is always there. Every time you go to your gas tank and you see it's empty and you head to the gas station, you open up that pump and you begin to pull it in and that number starts turning. Usually it'll say something like 209 with a little 9. That little 9 represents a mill. In our currency years ago, we used to have these little plastic coins called mills. Ten of them made a penny. We still deal with it today, but we kind of round it up. Just two little mills, two little fractions of a cent. And if that's all you have... That's all you can give. And he celebrates the fact when we give. The worship team wants to come up. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 25. It's on the front of your first to know. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When, when did we see you thirsty and give you drink? And, and when did we, we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer then, Truly, I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We've got a decision to make. Alan mentioned these cards. I don't know what your decision is, but I know that you've got a decision. You can't walk away from here without making a decision. It's either to sit back and say, wait, let's see what somebody else will do. Or you're going to say, let me do. I mean, memorize Matthew 25, 40, this simple little verse. They're at the very bottom verse. Not the whole, if you want to memorize the whole passage, that'd be wonderful. But when we do just the simple little things for somebody else, that's all that matters to him. And we're doing it to him as well. Maybe, maybe you need to, to surrender your life to the Lord. You need to be baptized. You need to say fully, I am going to live my life to you and hear the cries of anguish in our world. And, and I'm going to interact with people in whatever way possible. I don't know what it is. But you've got to make a decision. Maybe it's your... Finally going to say, okay, I've heard it enough, Lord. I'm going to work in the nursery. I don't know what it is. But you know what you need to decide. And I can't decide it for you. But will you, will you be faithful to the call that he's asking you?